Please be seated. You know, the headline in the newspaper read, The Joyless Triumph of Nick Saban. If you don't know who Nick Saban is, he is the king of college football. I'm not happy about this fact, but it is true nonetheless. Nick Saban won a national championship with the LSU Tigers, but since coming to Alabama in 2007, he has ruled college football, winning four national championships. But he seems to be a joyless winner. One reporter saw Nick Saban at a party after winning the 2009 national championship, and he came up to Nick Saban and he said, Coach, you must be proud. It must be very gratifying to win the national championship. And Nick Saban, looking like he was put out and exhausted, just kind of sighed, and he said, I don't know. He said, you win one, but it, with every championship, you've got a new set of problems and issues. The writer later, later stated, that is quintessential Nick Saban, a joyless winner. It's hard to believe that the highest paid king of college sports could be a joyless winner. But he's not the only one. There are a lot of people in our world, a lot of Christians, in fact, who are joyless winners. As Christians, we should be the most joyful people on the planet. So why aren't we? Well, I think some of it goes back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We live in a turbo-paced lifestyle. We are hurry-sick, and we are swamped with stress and anxiety. I think part of it also is that we are a slave to our schedule. It drives us, and we place these these demands on ourselves that we can't even meet, these expectations that cause us to stress and worry more, and we feel like if we take a break, if we pause for just a moment, that the world's going to pass us by. As we said a couple of weeks ago, work is a virtue in our culture. Laziness is a vice. And so we feel like if we're working all the time, then we're productive and thus we're valuable. If we stop, if we slow down, then we're going to be perceived as lazy. So we resist, rest, and relaxation. Add to this the fact that Christians have often been sold a message that entertainment is where the devil does his best work, right? I mean, how many times have you heard a sermon on how rock and roll music is satanic? Don't go to a Rangers game because they serve beer there. Don't go to a buffet because it promotes gluttony. Don't get on the internet because there's nothing good on there. You can't go to the movies. There's no good movies out. You can't watch anything on television. There's nothing good there. It's a den of iniquity. You can find something wrong with every form of entertainment. And so many have taught the only use of your free time that is worthwhile is to read the Bible and pray. In fact, many religious people through the centuries have taught that, right? Get away from the world, live as a hermit or in a monastery, and just read the Bible and pray, because that's the only worthwhile use of your time. But wait a minute. God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it was paradise. Did God not intend for Adam and Eve to enjoy paradise? You look around you at the world that God has created. You don't think he intends for us to enjoy it? I mean, how are we supposed to respond to the playful kitten? How are we supposed to respond to the dog that wants to play fetch? You look at the mountains. You look at the seas. You look at, 
you know, all this grandeur, this beauty that God has created, and he doesn't expect us to enjoy it? I think he absolutely does. But what's the problem with entertainment? Well, the wise Solomon had something to say about that. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Before we get there, I want to read something to you. It'll be on the screen, 1 Timothy 6 and 17. It says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. With all things to enjoy. God is a God of joy. So what's the problem with entertainment? Well, here's what Solomon says. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it, was too, it, what, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. And I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men and many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Now Ecclesiastes may not be the most uplifting thing you've ever read, but there is some value in the depressing tone of, of what Solomon says here. You see, he pursued pleasure relentlessly. This wise man acted very foolishly at one time in his life. He had everything at one time in his life. The power, the fame, all the things that go with, with having money. He built parks. He, he planted vineyards. He, he ruled over all the nations. He built the temple. And of course, he had the women. 700 wives, 300 concubines. And really... Besides 999 of the women, there wasn't anything inherently wrong with what he was taking pleasure in. So what's the problem? The problem was Solomon made the sideshow the main event. And any time we do that, we have sinned. You see, there wasn't anything wrong with enjoying the things that he had, again, except for 999 of the women. But within all of this, Solomon made the sideshow the main event, and that's where he fell. He says, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all of it is vanity and striving after the wind. Solomon's pursuit of entertainment turned up empty. 
and he concludes that it all was meaningless. He gives some more specific symptoms in chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Solomon's pursuit had wore him down. He says, what's it all for anyway? What does it really even matter? It's all a chasing after the wind. I mean, we're just going in circles. We're just spinning our wheels, he says. And you keep in mind that this was written before there were iPhones and the internet, movies and television. Solomon looks at his life and his pursuit of entertainment and he says, it all comes up empty. Because he's looking for something under the sun, he's pursuing something under the sun that can't be found under the sun. No matter how hard he pursued pleasure, it would always come up empty. He says the conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. In other words, at the end of the day, this is all that really matters. I tried finding pleasure in everything under the sun, but at the end of the day, this is all that really matters. We were made for God, and until he is our greatest pleasure, all other pleasures in life will be empty. Don't make the sideshow the main event. It's not that recreation or play or leisure is wrong. We make it wrong when pleasure or amusement or leisure or entertainment become the pursuit. It's not that God doesn't want us to enjoy his creation. It's not that he expects us to use all of our free time just reading the Bible and praying. Play is important. It just can't be the most important. You see, if your play keeps you from worship, then it's wrong. If your play involves things that are sinful, then it's not good. If your play becomes all-consuming, that's not good. If your play becomes your God, then it's definitely not good. Sports are great. And I bring up sports because it's probably the greatest idol in our culture right now. We love to watch sports. We love to play sports. We love to watch our kids play sports. But when they become the focal point of our lives, when they become all-consuming, then obviously that is wrong. It's no longer about recreation. It's about worship. Are we investing everything in a relentless pursuit of things under the sun? Are we making the sideshow the main event? Something that we have to ask ourselves. It's no different than the workaholic or the couch potato. The workaholic worships his work. The couch potato worships his rest. We can make a God out of everything. We can make a God out of anything. We've got to allow the things in our lives, the different aspects of our lives, whether it's work, rest, or play, to have its proper place. You see, here's the deal. We often look at life like it's an orange. You peel an orange, and then you take out section by section and eat each section, right? That's how we look at life many times. Every part of life is a section. You have the work section, you have the school section, maybe. You have the play section, sports, 
band, whatever the recreational activity is that you engage in. Everything in life has a section, including worship or church, right? Including God and Jesus. And so life becomes categorized. Everything has a category. But that's not how we need to view life. Life isn't an orange. Life is a peach. You ever ate a peach? It's a hand fruit. You hold it in your hand, you eat it. Until eventually you get to the center. And what's in the center? A pit. Think of the pit as God. And everything encompasses Him. Everything revolves around Him. He is encased in everything that we do. And He should affect everything that we do. Life is a peach. It's not an orange. You can't section it all. God has to be all-consuming, and He has to drive everything else in our lives. Back to Solomon. Notice Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where Eddie read from a moment ago, starting in verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. There's a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Solomon says it very clearly. There's a time for everything. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to enjoy life. There's a time to celebrate and enjoy the things that God has created, but it's a balance. Solomon's not a killjoy. He's not trying to say that you can't enjoy life. He didn't do a, a 180 after discovering that everything was vanity and a striving after the wind. He didn't come around and say, well, you shouldn't do anything that's enjoyable in life. That's not what he's saying at all. Notice verses 12 and 13. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor is the gift of God. Then you notice in chapter 9, I know we're skipping around a lot, but in chapter 9, verse 9, he says, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. So Solomon is not saying that we can't enjoy life. In fact, he's saying that we should. I have no doubt that Solomon enjoyed life. I'm sure it was pleasurable for him. But pleasure became his primary pursuit, and that's where he went off the rails. He worshipped pleasure, and we can't afford to make the same mistake. I don't know if you've ever read the book, uh, Gods at War, by Kyle Eidelman. Great book. But in that book, Eidelman tells of an experience when his daughter was little. She was a huge Peyton Manning fan. And at that time, he played for the Indianapolis Colts, and they didn't live far from Indianapolis. And she begged her dad to take her to watch Peyton Manning play. And so they drove up on a Saturday, and they got up the next morning on Sunday to go and worship before they headed off to the game. And she begged her dad to wear her Peyton Manning jersey to church. And Eidelman says, nobody's going to be wearing a Peyton Manning jersey to church. Just wear your church clothes. And he says, I've never been more wrong. He gets to church, and 37 other people had on a Peyton Manning shirt. In fact, two had their faces painted. And so they go to the game, and they enjoy it. They made some great memories. But on the drive home, this is what Eidelman says. He says, but on the drive home, as my exhausted daughter slept, I couldn't help but think about the fact that I had really attended two worship services that day. The question I was asking myself was, 
which one was I most passionate about? What a probing question. Are we committed to a surrogate religion? Are we polytheistic and don't even realize it? Are we trying to worship more than one God? Does God have competition for first place in your heart? God has given us many wonderful things to enjoy in this life, hasn't he? Whether it be our children, whether it be the ski slopes, whether it be the ocean to sail on or the mountains to climb or the trails to hike or the sunsets to view. God's handiwork is all around us and has provided us with an array of options that we can find pleasure in, but he's still the only one worthy of our worship. We enjoy God's blessings, but we worship the one who gave them to us. Ever play Monopoly? You know anything about the game of Monopoly? You have this pretend money. You have these pretend properties. The goal is to buy up all the properties that are expensive so that every time somebody lands on your property, they owe you money. And so you, you buy these, these plastic apartments and hotels and houses and you put them on your property. And the whole idea is to be the winner at the end of the game to have all the property, all the money, or at least the most of it, so that everybody else runs out of money and you get it all. And no matter how long you play that game, even if you play it, for hours on end, when it's over, guess what happens? It all goes back in the box. And that's exactly what Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes. You want a theme for the book of Ecclesiastes? We jumped to the end of it a while ago. The conclusion when all is said is this, fear God and keep his commandments. Solomon, in essence, is saying, when it's all said and done, it all goes back in the box. So you'd better pay attention to what's most important, right? Right? I want you to notice Ecclesiastes 9, starting in verse 7. He says, Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life, and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of availability, for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Real encouraging, right? What inspiring words. But Solomon begins this section of his journal or his memoir by pointing out that death is imminent. None of us are getting out of here alive. So what are you going to do about that? Well, you're going to live your life wisely. Man's days are numbered. And because life is uncertain, we need to make the most of it. He says, go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. What he's really saying here is that enjoy what God has blessed you with. Celebrate your life with others. The statement, God has already approved your works, means that this is God's will for you. That he wants this for you. It's not sinful to take pleasure in what God has given you. It's when that pleasure leads to sin. It's when it's wrong. He also writes, let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. In the Old Testament, births, weddings, 
festivals, things of that nature, were an occasion for individuals to dress up and to smell nice. That's what Solomon is referring to here. He says, wear white clothes, have oil as a sign of rejoicing, put oil on your head, which is the ancient equivalent to saying put on some perfume or some cologne, smell nice. In other words, celebrate life while you have it. Enjoy life while you have it. He goes on to say, enjoy life with the woman whom you love. You know anything about Solomon, you know he had a lot of honeys and a lot of honeymoons, didn't he? And yet he seems to be saying here, you know, it was all vanity. Pick one woman that you love, give your heart to her, and enjoy life with her. And finally he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. We only have one opportunity to make a contribution. You only live once. Our time, our work, our rest, our play will come to a screeching halt at death. And so Solomon says, live for God now. Let your work, let your rest, even your play be God-focused. In essence, through all of this, God is, or excuse me, Solomon is saying, you only get one shot. You better make the most of it. Above all else, live a life that matters to God. It all matters to him, but so many people aren't living a life that acknowledges that. Solomon says, live a life that matters to God. None of the earthly pleasures that seem so appealing will ever scratch your deepest itch. And he goes on to say, and I love this, in chapter 6, verse 7, he says, All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. You ever eat a big, juicy steak? The best steak you ever ate, no matter how good it was, guess what? You're going to be hungry tomorrow. That's the curious repetition to, to hunger, right? Is no matter how full you get, you're eventually going to want to eat again. And if you go long enough, you're going to feel like you're starving again, no matter how, how much you stuffed your face the day before or hours before. And that's the way with anything in life. Investing in the stuff of this world is never going to satisfy you. If you're striving for things under the sun, you're never going to find them because they can't be found under the sun. There's always something to hunger for. And at the end of the day, it all goes back in the box anyway. You see, here's the deal. If you read through the Bible, you see over and over again that God consistently and constantly used the underdog, didn't he? Over and over again. Do you realize that you are a true underdog story? The odds are against you. Satan is against you. The world, by and large, is against you. And yet, because of Jesus Christ, you win. Because Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose again. When you put on Christ in baptism... When you become a child of God and clothe yourself in Christ, you become a winner. You conquer. Not only do you conquer, you overwhelmingly conquer, as Paul wrote in Romans. And therefore, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what I take away from that? I take away this. Congratulations, you win. So why are we not joyful? Don't be a joyless winner. 
You're victorious. So no matter what it is, whether it's work, rest, or play, every aspect of your life, enjoy it. Invest in it. Just don't make it your God, right? All of our life comes down to what we worship. And if you want to know what you worship, just think about what you place the most emphasis upon. And no matter how virtuous you may think it is, if it's not God, it's wrong. We have a lot of blessings to enjoy. God has blessed us with so many things. But of all the blessings we have, don't forget that there's only one worthy to worship. It's not any of the blessings. It's the blesser. Maybe you're here this morning and you're someone who is polytheistic. And you didn't even realize it. You know what that means? That means that you are worshiping many different gods. You never really even thought about that. And maybe you need to turn your heart back to God. Maybe you're someone who has been worshiping an idol that's not God, of course. You've been worshiping your work or your rest or your play or or something else, and it's time to turn your heart back to God, and you need the prayers and support of this church family. Or maybe you're someone who has been living under the bondage of sin, and you're ready to be freed. And to give your life to Christ. So if you're ready to study the Bible with someone. Or perhaps you have been studying. And you're ready to put on Christ in baptism. Take care of that this morning. Get rid of the other gods in your life. And only serve the one that matters. The one true God. And if you have a need. Come now as we stand. And as we sing.